Today's episode is sponsored by NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. NerdWallet's financial journalists use fact-based reporting for some much-needed clarity in the finance world, helping you make smarter decisions with your money. Get smarter about things like saving on travel, because spending less on airfare means more money for an extra night and maybe a fancier dinner, too. Boosting your credit score, since good credit is like a real-life cheat code. And saving for an emergency fund, because life is like a good movie. It loves a good plot twist. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast on your favorite podcast app. Future you will thank you. The Peter Schiff Show. Well, late Friday night, or I guess early Saturday morning, the Senate passed its version of the Tax Cut and Jobs Act. And, you know, the market last week, as it became more apparent that the Senate was, in fact, going to pass the bill, uh, the market was rallying and continued to rally. And, in fact, today rallied again. This was the first chance the market had to react to the Senate actually passing their version of the bill. At one point today, the Dow Jones was at 24,534. That's the new record high. It had surrendered most, but not all, the gains by the close. The Dow only closed up about 58 points. Still, a new record close at 24,290. The Nasdaq, on the other hand, was down as the correction and maybe the beginning of a bear market. We don't know yet. Uh, But the correction in the technology sector continues. The Nasdaq was down 72 points today, although even when the Dow was up 250 Earlier this morning, the Nasdaq was still down about 50 points. So the tech stocks are weak. Obviously, too, there are a lot of technology stocks that may not have any earnings. There's certainly uh, some of them. And in fact, the stocks without earnings are probably more, uh, you know, more popular on the Nasdaq than they are in the S&P 500 or in the Dow Jones. Because if you're reacting to a tax cut, and by the way, the S&P ended up negative on the day, although it did hit a record high intraday, it closed negative. But part of the reason that stocks are rallying or the justification is the tax cuts. Because if corporate taxes are going down, then your after-tax earnings are going up. And since stocks value is, in theory anyway, a function of their after-tax earnings, If your after-tax earnings goes up, then all else being equal, the stock is going to be more valuable. Of course, if you don't have any earnings to tax, if you're operating at a loss, then what difference does it make what the tax rate is? You're not going to pay any taxes. So clearly, companies that don't have much in the way of earnings or are operating at a loss, like maybe like a Tesla or something like that, right? companies that are losing money, they don't benefit from lower taxes, at least not now. I mean, if they ever make a profit at some point in the future, then they would get the benefit of the lower taxes, assuming the taxes are still lower uh, at that point in the future. Because despite everybody talking about these permanent tax cuts, I've said many times on this podcast, no tax cuts are permanent, especially when we have massive deficits, especially when you're not reducing the size of government while you're cutting taxes. If you're continuing to allow government to get bigger and bigger, then it's only a matter of time until those tax cuts turn into tax hikes. But I wanted to get into uh, a little bit about the Senate version of these tax cuts. And in fact, there was only one Republican who voted against the, the tax cuts. Of course, all the Democrats voted against them, but there was one Republican a corker who uh, voted against it. I guess he had some principles when it came to adding to the debt. It was interesting because there were some rumors floating around last week that in order to get corker to be a yes, um, they were going to put some kind of automatic trigger. And the the whole thing sounded kind of crazy to me that they could even do it, which is probably why they didn't. But there was going to be some kind of trigger where if the deficits were larger than they expected, or if the tax cuts didn't pay for themselves in some way, that then there would be uh, automatic tax hikes to kind of offset the the loss of revenue. And what disturbed me the most about this was 
why would there be automatic tax hikes? Why not automatic spending cuts? Why not say that if the tax cuts don't pay for themselves, that will cut spending in order to pay for the tax cuts? Why do the tax cuts have to be paid for with tax hikes? I mean, if this doesn't tell you that the Republican Party has completely abandoned any pretense of wanting smaller government. You know, the Republicans control the House and the Senate and the White House. They can cut government spending if they want to. The problem is they don't want to. You know, when Ronald Reagan was elected in 1981, when he came in and they had the initial Reagan tax cuts, the Republicans got the Senate. But they didn't have the House. Remember Tip O'Neill? He was the big guy that was in charge, the Speaker of the House of Representatives. They could not get any tax cuts passed without getting Tip O'Neill and the Democrats on board. So that is why they couldn't have any spending cuts, because while there were Democrats who were willing to vote for, for tax cuts, they were not willing to vote for spending cuts. So they couldn't cut spending. Reagan could not cut spending if he wanted tax cuts because he couldn't get the Democrats to go along with it. But what excuse do the Republicans have today? The Republicans have both houses of Congress. Well, the problem is you've got a lot of liberals on the Republican side. The Republicans won't go along with cutting government spending either. Now, of course, they all want to sign on to tax cuts. Everybody wants to give tax cuts away. But nobody in the Republican Party, or at least very few members of the Republican Party, actually want to have smaller government. I mean, they love the campaign about smaller government. Oh, we're for federalism. We're for the Constitution. We're for sound money. They have all the sound bites that appeal to conservatives, uh, libertarians, free market guys. But when it comes right down to it, they're no better than Democrats when it comes to wanting big government and, and not being in favor of doing anything, shrinking anything, getting rid of any agencies, getting rid of any departments. Believe me, if Ronald Reagan had been able to sweep uh, of the, the House, if he had been able to get rid of the Democrat majority in the House of Representatives and we had delivered the House to the Republicans in 1981, I think the Reagan tax cuts would have been much more successful because they would have been paired with spending cuts. See, unlike Trump, Reagan really campaigned on cutting government spending. He campaigned on balancing the budget. He was very critical of the Carter budgets, and he wanted a balanced budget. But he couldn't do it because of the Democratic opposition in the House. But Trump doesn't have that problem. But the problem is Trump isn't Reagan. Trump doesn't want smaller government. He just wanted to get elected. And the Republicans that are in Congress, that's all they care about. They just want to get reelected. So they don't want smaller government. They just want to deliver a victory uh, to their constituents, even a hollow victory like this one. In fact, you know, the president likes to make a big deal about fake news, right? Whenever the media says something that's not true, it's fake news. You know what's fake news? Calling this tax reform. All these articles I keep reading, tax reform, we passing major tax reform. There is no tax reform here. This is all a gimmick. This isn't even simplification. You know, this actually complicates the code. The tax code is going to be more complex as a result of this. I mean, sure, if you are a low-income wage earner who is now itemizing and will take the standard deduction, yes, for you, this is simpler. But if you're not in that category, if you are itemizing or if you are running a small business, the tax code just got a lot more complex. Now, it may be lower taxes, right? If you do it the right way and if you're running a small business, you will get a tax cut, but your tax return is going to be a lot more complicated. And you're going to have to pay your accountant a lot more money to help you figure out how to take advantage of the tax breaks that you just got. Because this new bill actually opens up a lot more loopholes than it closes, right? So it's about more gimmicks, more special breaks for people who hire the right accountants and make their money the right way. I mean, look at all the special breaks in there for real estate developers. I mean, huh, what a shock. You know, it's, it's kind of ironic. Nobody really points this out, but 
both versions of, of this bill take away some of the tax benefits of home ownership to people who buy and live in their, their house, right? You're, you're taking away some of the tax breaks. And I agree with that. We sh- th- those tax breaks shouldn't be there. But at the same time, these bills are adding additional tax breaks to people who buy property and rent it out. Right? If you buy residential property and rent it out, you are going to have better tax treatment under these bills than you have now. And under the House bill, it's actually even better than under the Senate bill. And of course, if you buy and and lease out commercial property, the breaks are even better because you, you get a huge uh, decrease. Right now in commercial real estate, you depreciate the property on over 39 years. Uh, and uh, under these bills, they shorten that life down to 25 years. So you, you, you save a lot more on your taxes uh, because you can write off the property quicker. On uh, residential property, it's going down from 27 and a half years to 25, so not as big a savings, but still a savings. And of course, they are reducing the House bill, reduces the tax on passive income to just 25%. So right now, if you own a bunch of uh, rental properties through a passive uh, investment company, uh, your passive income is taxed at 39% if you're in the highest bracket. But you know, with the House bill, it's down to 25%. The Senate bill is more complicated, so I don't even want to get into it on this podcast. Uh, And I'm not even sure how it's going to come out of their committee. So I don't really know what the ultimate package uh, that is going to be voted on or signed into law. But I know that it is going to include various tax breaks for people who own and develop rental property, whether it's residential property or commercial property, and they are taking away uh, tax breaks for individuals who want to own and occupy their own house. Now, one of the things that really annoyed me, too, about the whole discussion about, you know, the SALT taxes, the state and local tax deductions, is when you have the the Republicans saying, you know, we don't want to reward uh, state governments for excess spending, and we don't want to encourage uh, excess spending, you know, it's not, you know, you have some state governments that are spending all this money and we don't, we want to take away that subsidy uh, and we want to kind of force these state governments to be more fiscally responsible. I mean, talk about the, the pot calling the kettle black. I mean, yes, there are a lot of states that spend a lot of money, but not like the federal government. I mean, I don't care if you live in New York and you live or, or in Connecticut or New Jersey or California, what you pay to your state is a small fraction of what you pay to the federal government. It's the federal government that's out of control, way more than the states. Sure, I mean, there are states that spend too much money too. I'm not defending the states, but it's not up to Congress to be critical of the state legislatures. Well, you know, look what Congress is doing. In fact, that is one of the reasons that moving from a high-tax state to a low-tax state doesn't happen more often. Because no matter where you move in the United States, right, you don't get out from under the federal income tax. And that is the biggest part of the burden. So some people don't move because, yes, I can save some money on my state taxes by moving from a high tax state to a lower tax state. But at the end of the day, the cost of moving, disrupting my life, taking my kids out of school, the savings are just not big enough. The real savings are in the federal taxes. I mean, that's one of the reasons that I'm living in Puerto Rico, because by going down there, then I get out from under the federal tax. And so that is a much bigger incentive uh, to move than simply, you know, had I moved to Florida, yeah, I would have got rid of the 7% income tax in Connecticut, but I would still have uh, the very, very large income tax, the federal income tax. So for the federal government to try to say, hey, it's the states that are just spending too much money, It's the federal government that needs to dramatically reduce spending. Now, I agree that because of the elimination of the state and local tax deduction for income taxes, that will increase the reward from moving from a high-tax state to a low-tax state. And so there probably will be more migration from high-tax states to low-tax states. And most of those low-tax states tend to be Republican, and the high-tax states tend to be Democrat. So there is a lot of politics behind this, but there is a lot of hypocrisy as well. And again, I still would rather have the state and local tax deduction there because I still don't like the concept of double taxation. And I still believe in federalism. I still believe that the states 
should be the primary uh, tax engine rather than the federal government. People should pay more in state taxes than they pay in federal taxes. And for a long time in America, that was the case. No, but federal taxes were nothing. The federal taxes are there for the, for the army. They're, I mean, that's it. They're there for national defense. And if we run a more reasonable uh, national defense budget, it would not cost nearly as much as what we're spending now. So I would rather see uh, the lion's share of your tax dollars being consumed locally by your state and your local governments. And the federal burden should be very, very low. That is the problem. And what this is ultimately doing is changing the system so that the federal government gets bigger and bigger in relationship to the states. And this is the opposite of the direction that you would think most Republicans would want to take. You know, if this was real tax reform, right, what would real tax reform be like? Well, we would abolish the income tax completely, right? That would be reform. Get rid of it. Get rid of the estate tax completely. You know, the Senate version preserves the estate tax. They even preserve the alternative minimum tax, right? Now, if we're not going to go all the way and get rid of the income tax, well, at least go to a flat tax. They don't do that either. In fact, you know, maybe the, 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 the system gets even more progressive. There are a lot of Americans that are going to go uh, to pay no income taxes whatsoever as a result of this bill. And I, I think that the, the, the higher income is going to end up paying a larger share of the total tax than, than they do now. So we, we go further away from a flat tax. In fact, the Senate version, they preserve the same seven brackets we got now. I think that, that, that you know the levels are different, but the number of brackets remains the same. So maybe a flat tax where everybody pays the same and we get rid of all the deductions, right? That, that would be some type of a tax reform. But going from an income-based tax system to a production-based tax system, right? A national value-added tax, a sales tax, uh, there's been a proposal for a long time called the fair tax. I mean, something like that would be tax reform. This isn't tax reform. This is a bunch of gimmicks. These are tax cuts, sure, disguised as reform. You know, and but you've got all kinds of gimmicks to try to mask the true extent uh, of the increase in the deficit that will result. Because obviously, the, the, the Senate is claiming it's 1.4 a trillion, but that's assuming that all the breaks for individuals expire uh, during the, the term of during the 10 years, which they tell you, well, we're not going to let them expire. Well, then if they don't let them expire, then the deficits, the increase in the debt will be much more than $1.4 trillion. But of course, they are also underestimating the ability of higher income earners to recharacterize their earnings. And there is plenty of opportunity here and accountants will certainly seize on that. And a lot of people are going to be able to move themselves down uh, to the 25% bracket from the 38.5% bracket or 396 whichever it is. And so the government is going to end up losing a lot more revenue than they believe. And I think one of the biggest ironies is the hedge funds, the carried interest unscathed once again. You know, when, when Trump campaigned, he specifically campaigned on how the hedge funds were getting away with murder. Well, apparently it's okay because in this major so-called tax reform, the carried interest, neither the House nor the Senate did anything. And in fact, they, the Senate version of the, this bill, they are going to allow uh, the master limited partnerships, publicly traded partnerships, to qualify for the 25% tax. So now if you've got a big private equity company that's publicly traded, not only are they going to preserve the carried interest when it comes to their incentive fee, but now their management fees, where there used to be a payment, a tax payment of up to 39.6%, that's dropping down to 25%. So some of these hedge funds are going to get a cut in their taxes in addition to maintaining the carried interest uh, that they had before. So who's really pulling these strings? You got all these special tax breaks for hedge funds, for real estate developers, right? Built into the code. Uh, passive income gets a reduction. You know, I mean, obviously, this is a special interest driven combination of tax hikes and tax cuts. But none of this is this massive uh, tax reform. Uh, Trump is talking about the biggest tax cut in American history. It's not even close to being the biggest tax cut. It is a tax cut, but we have a more complex tax code. 
We have a tax hold with more loopholes and, and, and more benefits for special interest, more government meddling and manipulating in, uh, in the economy. This is the opposite of what was promised. But again, this is par for the course. This is what happens with government. There is no truth in legislating. Everything these guys are telling us is a lie. And it should prove to a lot of people who still believed that Trump is going to make America great again, that anything is changing. Nothing substantive has changed. They are rearranging the deck chairs on this Titanic. We are still headed for a complete economic meltdown. Nothing has changed. This is not Trump right now is not the savior. He is not doing anything to avert this crisis. Again, I still believe that when it hits the fan, that Trump is more likely to then do the right thing than would Hillary Clinton have had she been the commander-in-chief at the time, right? But as far as avoiding the collapse, Trump's not going to do a thing. I mean, Trump is still tweeting about how much the stock market is going up and how, you know, oh, he's excited that the stock market is rallying. In fact, he was joking about using a line for his new tagline or slogan, like, how's your 401k doing? Like, this is how he wants to be measured at the success of his presidency is how well your 401k is performing. Now, when he was a candidate, he didn't run on making the stock market go up. I mean, when he was a candidate, he said the stock market's a bubble, right? But now, you know, his whole claim to fame is, well, you know, take a look at the stock market. That's how That shows you what a great job I'm doing because the stock market is going up. Well, the stock market went way up under Barack Obama. Yet Trump said Obama did a lousy job, right? He said it didn't matter that the stock market went up because it, it was a bubble. Well, now all of a sudden, the stock market going up proves he's, he's a great president. Well, if he's a great president because the stock market's going up, well, so was Barack Obama. Or it's another thing that's been going up is uh, cryptocurrencies. Now, I guess Donald Trump hasn't claimed credit for that, uh, but Bitcoin now continuing to rise. The new high now is above 11,000. I'm not sure exactly how much higher it got, maybe 11,300, 11,400, I forget exactly. But, you know, it has been very volatile because I think the first time it got above 11,000, within 24 hours, it was back down below 9,000. So one of these, you know, one-day bear markets where, you know, Wall Street likes to define a bear market as a 20% decline. Well, a lot of times Bitcoin makes an all-time record high and then enters a bear market all in the same 24-hour period, which is exactly what happened, but they bought the dip. And once again, even though uh, Bitcoin went down, it went back up. And in fact, right now, I just happened to pull it up. It's 11, I'm looking at it now above 11,500. Um, I don't Actually, I think it almost got to 12,000 over the weekend. I think I saw it around 11,900 or something. I don't think it actually hit 12,000. Of course... You know, if you throw in uh, the other two uh, spinoffs, if you throw in Bitcoin Cash and and Bitcoin Gold, yeah, it's well north of that. But just if you look at Bitcoin itself, I mean, 11500 But they bought the dip. And, you know, in fact, I read this article that was out on Zero Hedge, and it was uh, about a stripper. It was referencing an article about a stripper whose new passion was trading cryptocurrencies. And I read some of the quotes uh, from the stripper, and one of one of the things that she said was what's so great about Bitcoin is all you have to do is buy it when it goes down, and you're guaranteed to make money. So it's so great because you just wait for it to go down, and then you buy it because you can't lose because it always goes up. And you know this is the exact same stuff that was going on during the housing bubble. If you go back on the internet and you can read a lot of the articles that I wrote about the housing bubble from 2004-ish to 2007, I was writing a lot of articles. And one of the articles in particular I wrote had to do with an article I read, I think it was in the New York Times, about these mini real estate moguls. And these young kids in their 20s, and they were getting rich buying real estate. And I remember just one of the quotes that I read was they said that you know the way they approach real estate is they always pay up, right? That they said that they overbid to capture the opportunity. Because they said they didn't want to lose out on any property. So whenever there was a bidding war, they would always pay the highest. And they said it doesn't matter what you pay for real estate. Because no matter what you pay, you can always sell it for a higher price. So therefore, you don't want to miss out on any opportunity. And so to capture every possible opportunity, they overpaid. Knowing they were overpaying because they knew no matter what, 
they can sell it for a higher price because it was impossible to overpay for real estate because whatever you paid, somebody else would be paying, willing to pay you more. And, you know, that was just such complete nonsense. I'm sure those kids went bankrupt. Uh, but th that's what this reminded me of when, you know, you read this article, people are so convinced that, hey, I can just buy any dip and it doesn't matter, right? In fact, I put this article up today on my Facebook page. I read this story about uh, these uh, crypto kitties that just started about a, about a week ago. They launched these and you have to buy them with Ethereum, right? So you, you, you use that. That's the cryptocurrency that you use to initially get into the market or to buy the the, the, the crypto kitties and I guess they trade in ether as well so you know you buy the the, the 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 kitties but then I guess you buy the genetic components to make your uh, digital kitty or crypto kitty and then you can breed them and you could try to get certain characteristics of your kitties and then and then you can trade them and apparently in one week they've already had one of these crypto kitties has sold for $117,000 and change, $117,000. Now, I don't know how much it cost the seller of that crypto kitty to, to create that, to breed that crypto kitty, but he was able to sell it to somebody who paid $117,000. Why? Because he thinks somebody else will pay more. And they, maybe they will. You know, maybe someone's going to buy, maybe someone's going to buy a million dollar crypto kitty, which, you know, reminded me of the joke. There's an old joke about somebody that has a, a million dollar cat, right? They claim they have a million dollar cat. And I guess this guy tells his buddy, hey, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go sell my cat, you know, my million dollar cat. And he's, and he's like, how are, you gonna, how are you gonna get a million dollars for that cat? He's like, well, I'm gonna go sell, I'm gonna sell for a million dollars. And then he, you know, he sells, a, he sells the cat and, he's, and he tells his friend, yeah, I sold the cat for a million dollars. A million dollars? You found someone to pay you a million dollars cash for that cat? says, well, I didn't actually get a million dollars in cash. I traded my million dollar cat for two $500,000 dogs. Right? So it made me think, so, you know, when is somebody to come up with crypto puppies, right? Because then you can actually trade a million dollar crypto cat for two $500,000 crypto puppies. But, you know, this is the type of thing that you see in, in complete and utter manias. No, you know, stuff like this happening. You know, I put this up on there and people are saying, well, you know, you know, you're pointing out this irrational stuff. You just want to ignore, you know, all the, the good things that are happening. There are no good things. It's just a gigantic bubble. This, this stuff, these, these uh, crypto kitties, this is just the ultimate in the absurdity. These are just the, the, where you go from the sublime to the ridiculous, right? But it's not that these crypto kitties are, are bubbles, but, you know, Bitcoin itself or uh, Ethereum or any of these other cryptocurrencies are legitimate. And you just have these these few crazy bubbles that are built on top of this, uh, this you know, legitimate uh, thing. It's all a bubble. The whole thing is one big bubble. People are buying. People think they're going to keep going up. Money's pouring in. I mean, I've seen a lot of bubbles. And I think this is the most irrational of all the bubbles that I've seen. And maybe because it's so irrational... It can go on even longer. And, you know, it's obviously uh, captivated the entire world, right? It's not just localized. You know, it's a planetary bubble. It's happening all around the world. People all around the world are trying to get in on the action. And a lot of money is getting sucked into it. And the bubble just gets bigger and bigger and bigger. But when it pops, look out. Right? I mean, I'm not going to try to try to mm, figure it out. But I still think, I still think that... There's a good chance that it's going to be tied to the price of gold. Because now that you've got so many people who believe that Bitcoin is digital gold, because that's really the selling point now, and I've talked about that. Well, as long as actual gold isn't doing anything, digital gold looks pretty good. But if real gold starts to move up in a big way, and all the people who have all this digital gold, all this crypto gold, if they decide that it's time to get some of the real thing, look out. Because... The money can come in, but it can't come out, right? That's a real type of monetary roach motel, right? Money coming into the cryptos is one thing. Try to get it back out in mass. Sure, if you're the only person that wants to sell, plenty of buyers. But if a lot of people want to sell, especially a lot of the big money, a lot of the institutions that were parking, you know, millions and millions of dollars in digital gold, 
and all of a sudden real gold starts to move and digital stole gold starts to come down and they think, you know what, maybe we should own the real thing, right? Who's going to take the other side of that trade? Now, another thing that is ironically driving, you know, the appeal of Bitcoin and probably the price increase is the futures contracts that are going to be uh, released this month, right? So Bitcoin futures will be trading and there is a lot of excitement around this. Of course, I remember early on, right, one of the reasons that a lot of uh, people liked Bitcoin better than gold, right, because they said, oh, Bitcoin is better than gold. And one of their arguments was that gold is subject to manipulation. After all, they have a futures contract on gold, and so there's no futures contract on Bitcoin. And so the absence of a futures contract was why you should buy Bitcoin, because it couldn't be manipulated. Well, now... The people are saying, oh, buy Bitcoin because it's going to have a futures contract. This makes it more legitimate, right? This makes it more mainstream. Well, which is it? It can't be both. Bitcoin couldn't be better than gold because it didn't have a futures contract. And now it's even better because it does. Because you know what? If gold is being manipulated through futures contract, if that is the case, and if the powers that be are really manipulating gold, it's going to be much easier for them to manipulate Bitcoin. And if the powers that be feel threatened by Bitcoin, it'll be easier to manipulate its price using futures markets than gold. Because the big difference between the Bitcoin futures and gold futures is that Bitcoin futures settle in cash. They don't settle in actual Bitcoin. So if you are short Bitcoin, you never have to actually go into the market and buy Bitcoins and deliver them to the other side of the contract. That is not the case in gold. If you are short gold, if you do not close your position before the contract expires, and if longs right do not close theirs, you can be stuck. You can be stuck with a delivery notice. Even if you had no intention of delivering gold, that is always a risk that you take. If you stay in that contract too long and you're not able to cover buying another contract, you could get a delivery notice and you could be forced to deliver actual gold into that contract. Right? It doesn't settle in cash. All the gold contracts that are open on the last trading day settle in real gold. Real 100-ounce bars are delivered from the seller of the contract the short to the buyer of the long. Now, the vast majority of contracts that are open end up closing before then. So most of them settle. But those that don't have to deliver actual gold. But when it comes to Bitcoin contracts, that never happens. The people who don't get out just have to pay cash. So if you don't close out your position, once the contract closes, the, the sellers just have to pay the buyers cash. The buyers never get actual Bitcoins and the sellers never have to deliver actual Bitcoins to the buyers. So you tell me. Which market is going to be more easily manipulated? Obviously, Bitcoin futures will be much more prone to manipulation than will gold futures, yet nobody is worried about that, right? Because it's a mania. All news is good news. Nothing is bad. You know, one other thing I did want to point out on these cryptocurrencies and Bitcoin, but right now the market cap of all the cryptocurrencies uh, in the world is about $350 billion. That is a lot of money, right? And if, let's say, they go up tenfold again, which a lot of people believe is going to happen. In fact, most people buying Bitcoin today believe that, you know, tenfold is pretty much a sure thing. In fact, maybe it'll happen by the end of the year or not this year, maybe the end of next year. But if cryptocurrencies go up tenfold again, that means that the value of all the cryptocurrencies in the world would be $3.5 trillion. That is a substantial amount of purchasing power. Where does it come from, right? Well, if this actually happens, this is going to represent a massive loss for everybody who doesn't own cryptocurrencies, right? It's not just that the people who own cryptocurrencies make money. The people who don't own them lose money. This is a zero-sum game, right? If the people buying cryptocurrencies are white, this is a massive transfer of purchasing power from people who don't own cryptocurrencies to people who do. Because that $3.5 trillion of purchasing power will have come into existence without the production of a single consumer good. Right? Normally, if you get rich, you get rich by providing uh, a service or a good. You've produced something of value. 
right? You've added something into the pot, right? So if you get rich, maybe you've, you've made a product, you've created something of value that, that other people can consume, right? But all of this wealth associated with cryptocurrencies is not associated with the production of anything other than the cryptocurrencies themselves, which don't have any utility. They don't have any actual value. I can't consume it. Now, unfortunately, it is requiring a tremendous amount of energy to produce, particularly Bitcoin, right? There's a lot of energy. And in fact, if, they're, if the price is going to get higher and higher, it's going to become more and more expensive uh, to produce Bitcoins, right? To keep the miners going. So a lot more energy is going to be wasted on the production of them. But assuming that they go up tenfold, and now you have all these Bitcoin millionaires and billionaires, and now they want to start buying things, they're not going to buy anything that they produce themselves because they produce nothing themselves. So what this really is, is massive global inflation, right? The, the purchasing power that is gained by the cryptocurrencies is going to be equal to the purchasing power that is lost by the uh, physical currencies, the dollar, the euro, the yen, the yuan, because when the cryptocurrency owners go to spend their newfound wealth, their newfound purchasing power, they are going to be bidding up the price of goods and services that already exist without having added to the supply themselves, right? So all this represents is a claim on existing wealth. There is no new wealth that's being created, right? alongside this increase in price, right? This is just new currency, just, you know, entering into the, onto the planet, brand new currency that people are going to own. And now they can go take it right in theory and buy stuff with it, right? That's what everybody believes. So this is just a transfer of purchasing power. It is huge inflation, right? Because prices are going to have to go up for people who, you know, have dollars and euros. And yeah, now, of course, prices are going down, right? If, if, if cryptocurrencies go up tenfold, right? And something that used to cost, you know, one Bitcoin, right? Costs a half a Bitcoin, right? Well, you've seen a big deflation or a tenth of a Bitcoin. But if in the process, things double or triple in the price of dollars or euros, right? Then people who don't have Bitcoins, or other cryptocurrencies are seeing a real decline in their standard of living because the value of the currency they hold has gone down and that purchasing power has transferred right to the owners of these cryptocurrencies. Now, I don't believe it's going to happen. I don't believe that this purchasing power is ever going to be spent into the real economy. I think most of it is going to vaporize because it's all on paper. Yes, a lot of people have a lot of wealth in cryptocurrencies, but they're not trying to spend it. If the majority of people who own cryptocurrencies tried to spend them now, the price would implode because you can't spend it without selling it. And if everybody wanted to sell, then there'd be no value there, right? The price would just collapse. So I think as long as people who, don't, who own cryptocurrencies don't want to spend them, then you know, the, the price could, can continue to rise. But if you actually believe that these cryptocurrencies are going to be real money, that they're really going to circulate, and that they're really going to go up by a factor of 10 or whatever, then what you are talking about is a massive transfer of purchasing power. On a, this is a huge scale from people who, you know, who own uh, paper currencies to people who own cryptocurrencies. I mean, it's the millennials, right? You have a lot of kids, a lot of high school kids, college kids, right? The millennials, the, the, these are the guys that own the uh, the cryptocurrencies. You don't have that many, you know, people in the baby boom generation. You don't have that many people in their 60s, 70s, right? They, they, don't, they don't have a lot of cryptocurrencies, so they're going to get wiped out, right? They're going to see their entire life savings evaporate because all the purchasing power that they used to have is going to vanish because it's going to show up in these cryptocurrencies. That's what you have to believe, right? If you don't think this is a bubble and you really think prices are going to go that high, then this is what you feel. And obviously, too, I know there are probably people who feel that that's why they have to buy these cryptocurrencies or at least to buy some of them because they're afraid of that happening. Hey, if I don't buy cryptocurrencies, I'm going to be impoverished because my dollars will be worthless. My euros will be worthless. All the purchasing power is going to be in Bitcoin or some other coin. And so I almost have to buy because if I don't buy, I'm going to be completely broke. And that fear of being broke is also what's driving 
the bubble. It's not only the greed of wanting to get rich, but the fear that if you don't take part, if you don't participate, you'll be broke. I want to just finish up this podcast a little bit more on the sexual harassment uh, mania that is sweeping the nation. We have another congressman that was swept up in it last week. This is a first-termer. This guy is a Democrat from uh, Nevada, Ruben Kewen. I'm not really sure how to pronounce this guy's name. Young guy, single guy. And apparently, you know, he hit on one of his staffers during his campaign, one of the people that worked uh, on his campaign. And apparently the guy asked this woman out on a date on several occasions, right? He asked her out one time and she didn't say yes. And so he asked her out more times. And apparently one of the times he asked her out, I guess his hand touched her thigh. I mean, I don't really have all the details on how his hand touched her thigh. I mean, what was she wearing? I mean, was she wearing jeans? Was she wearing a skirt? Did he, did he brush by her thigh? I mean, did he, did, he, did he rest it there? I don't know. But that's the extent of the allegations. He asked her out on multiple occasions, and she said no, and he touched her thigh. And now you've got people calling for the guy to resign his house seat because of this. And they're saying, well, you know, he made these repeated sexual uh, advances uh, at this woman. I mean, which, you know, first of all, just because a man asks a woman out once, if she says no, that does not mean he can't ask her out again. I mean, this idea that, well, if she said no, well, then that's it. You, you don't get a second try. I mean, there are a lot of women that play hard to get. I mean, I'm not making up that word, playing hard to get. I mean, it's women have been playing hard to get since, since before I was born. You know, there's an old expression that says a man chases a woman until she catches him. What does that mean, right? Well, women don't necessarily accept the first invitation to go out on a date. Even if they want to go out on a date, they they say no for various reasons. Maybe they just want the guy to value them more. They think, well, if he has to work harder, uh, to get a date with me, then he'll, you know, he'll he'll value me more, right? The harder you work for something, the more you value it. I don't want to seem too easy. I want him to work for it. But, you know, there's probably a lot of reasons. Got, girls probably like guys that are persistent, guys that know what they want, right? Because if they're looking to marry a guy that they're hoping is going to be successful in his career, be a good provider, they don't want a guy that just takes no for an answer. They want somebody who knows what he wants and goes after it. So a lot of times they're testing us. Women, they, they say, no, I don't want to go out. And then, you know, you ask them two or three times and eventually, all right, yeah, I'll go out with you. You know, I mean, that's, so how do you know? You don't know when you ask a girl out, if she says no, that that's, you know, just not, you know, an invitation to ask her out again and again until they, maybe she says yes. I mean, I've heard lots of stories, couples that I've known where the the, the, the wife has said, yeah, the guy asked me out so many times. He finally wore me down and I agreed to go out with him. And now they've been married for years and they have kids. What, should none of these relationships have taken place? Imagine if every guy just had to give up the first time he asked out a woman on a date and she said, no, if they had to just give up. I mean, if that were the case, then women would have to change the way they, the way they operate. Nobody could play hard to get. You'd have to know, hey, the guy asked you out. You better say yes because he's never going to do it again. Right? You got one shot. This is all ridiculous. Now, I know, yes, technically he worked for her. So they say, oh, this is different because you can't ask out somebody who works for you. Well, look, I mean, I wouldn't do it, right? I mean, given the society we live in now, right? Yeah, I, I, I don't think people should ask out people that they work with. I don't think people should date people that they work with. And I think that's unfortunate. Because if it wasn't for how we have all this overreaction to sexual harassment, I would find it perfectly fine to ask somebody out that you meet at work, especially at a, at a campaign. I mean, these are all temporary jobs. I mean, I had a Senate campaign, right? I mean, there are people that work for me in that campaign. I, they, that was in 2010. How long was my campaign? Six months, seven months? I mean, the people that work on campaigns go from job to job to job. I mean, you're not working with them forever. And if you happen to meet somebody on a campaign that you really like, I mean, why can't you ask that person out on a date? You know, one of the things about campaigns, usually if somebody is working with you on a campaign, 
at least you have a lot in common. I mean, politically, you're you're on the same page, right? Because you're working on the same campaign. So you have something in common. And a lot of these campaigns, you know, you work long hours, you work nights. I mean, you're going to be in a situation where, you know, if you meet somebody that you really have a lot in common with and, and you're attracted to them, I mean, you know, maybe you ask them out on a date. I mean, what is what is so terrible about that? Even if you happen to be the candidate and they're one of the people that's working on the campaign, you know, especially if you're a single guy, you know, you're in the market for, you know, a wife, you know, and you find somebody who you're attracted to, who shares a lot of common interests with you, you want to ask him out. Now, all of a sudden, oh, the guy's got to resign his, his congressional seat. But, you know, here's going to be a lot of a problem, I think, for women, because you talk about legitimate, real uh sexual harassment and things like that, I think that one of the safest ways for women to meet men is at work, during the workplace. I mean, think about it. If you're a woman and you're working at the same company as, as, as you know various men, before you accept an invitation for a date, you may know that person for months or, you know, you, you know where they work, you, 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 you know their friends or you know their co-workers, people have formed opinions, right? And if you go out on a date with a person, I mean, he, I mean, he can't be, he can't treat you that badly because he's, he's still got to see you. He's still working at the same company, right? And if he does, if he does something bad, right, if he's aggr- too aggressive, I mean, you know, he could, you know, you know where he works, right? So, you know, you figure that from a woman's perspective, that dating people that you know from work, it's, a, it's safer than just going out with some guy you met at random at a bar one night or maybe somebody that you met online, right? I mean, what do you know, what do you know about those people at all? Nothing. You don't know anything about them, right? You're just taking a real chance with an unknown quantity. The, the people that you meet at work, I think it's, it's far less dangerous for a woman. I mean, for guys, guys don't really care, right? But for women, you know, and you, you think about uh, a movie, Looking for Mr. Goodbar. A lot of you might not remember that movie because it was in the, from the 1970s. So it was one of the earliest movies with Richard Gere. But in that movie, the main character, played by Diane Keaton, right? she meets some guy in a bar, she takes him home, and he kills her. Right <laughs> Now, the odds of somebody that you meet in the workplace murdering you on a date are pretty much zero, right? They're above zero if you meet them in a bar, right? So that is the point. But if there is a reaction, right, an overreaction, employers are just going to come out and just outright ban. They're just going to say, look, no inter-office dating whatsoever. Nobody can ask anybody out on a date if they work for the same company. Right? Because what employer wants to take that chance now? We're simply asking somebody out on a date is now sexual harassment. Nobody wants to deal with that. In fact, Already they're starting to cancel their Christmas parties. I read this article about a lot of office Christmas parties this year have been canceled. Some of them are being moved into the afternoon or they're just not going to serve alcohol. Because think about your typical Christmas party at night with alcohol. And a lot of the, the women, they dress up for these Christmas parties. I've been to a lot of office Christmas parties. I've seen how a lot of the women dress at these Christmas parties. Now, I'm not one of these guys that says, oh, you know, like, you know, blaming the victim for rape, right? I mean, if you if you dress a certain way, then it's your own fault if you get raped. Absolutely not, right? Uh, no, no woman is to blame for being raped, no matter how she dresses. But if you dress in a way to try to be sexy and to try to attract the attention of men, and then you succeed and you get the attention of men, and men talk to you in a certain way or ask you out on a date, then, I mean, that's not harassment, what do you expect? If you don't want uh, to be seen in that light, then don't dress in, in that way. But if you look at what happens at these parties, I mean, obviously there's going to be a lot of unwanted sexual uh, advances at Christmas parties, especially if they're late at night, there's dancing, there's drinking. I mean, what do you expect? There's women and men, they're single, right? And you put them in that environment now, the owner of the company is like, well, oh my God, am I going to get sued? I mean, because not only do these office Christmas parties cost a lot of money, because you got to rent out the venue, you got to pay for the food, you got to pay for the alcohol, maybe you got a DJ or you know, live music, right? Not only do you have to front the cost of putting on a party, but now you have to assume the liability that one of the guys says something or does something 
to one of the women, and now you're going to end up in a lawsuit because, oh, it's sexual harassment. Somebody made an unwanted sexual uh, advance. So I think that it's going to be worse a year from now because a lot of these Christmas parties are planned three, four, five, six months in advance. So it's kind of too late to cancel them now. But believe me, I bet a lot of these companies already have decided we're not having a Christmas party in 2018. 2017 is the last one we're going to have because they don't want to take a risk. And I, and I think a lot of this, as I said, is going to backfire on women because not only is it going to mean that women are not going to be able to meet men at work, they're going to have to meet men in riskier environments such as you know nightclubs, bars, or you know maybe the internet. But I think that it may make it more difficult for certain women to get hired at certain jobs. And I think employers may be reluctant to send men and women out on a business trip together, right? Out of town overnight. So wouldn't that diminish uh, your, your value or your opportunities if you're a woman, but your employer is afraid to put you into certain situations that may be lucrative for your career and may be good for business, but they're afraid that there may end up being an allegation of sexual misconduct or, or sexual harassment. And also, too, not all women are telling the truth. You know, and so you put this kind of power, you've now got a situation where the mere allegation of sexual impropriety is enough for a guy to lose his job, right? Just, he just, you just need to be the allegation. And so that's a lot of power. And I'm not saying all women are dishonest, but sometimes when women, you know, are scorned, and of course there are a lot of guys who are jerks. I'm not saying that guys aren't jerks. and They could, you know, they, they, they can be a real jerk to a woman. They could cheat on their girlfriend and now she's mad. But instead of keying the car, right, they just file a false uh, claim of uh, sexual harassment. And now the guy loses his job. So, you know, for guys, it's even riskier to, you know, to try to date somebody. That they, that they met on the job, that they meet at the office. And this is all very unfortunate that we have gone down this road that we can no longer uh, interact in, that, in, in a social way with coworkers, right? That they're now completely off limits. But I think that is uh, the path that we're on and there's probably no turning back. 